ERP systems, our favorite topic, right? While this is CFO Bookshelf, where we talk to a lot of business authors, there is no way I'm reading books about ERP project planning and implementations. Instead, I think this is a topic we learn by doing and we learn by listening to the sage advice of others. And one such person is Ed Kless. You probably recognize the name because I mention frequently the podcast he co-hosts with Ron Baker, and it's called The Soul of Enterprise. He's also the host of the Sage Thought Leader podcast. I view Ed as a business polymath. He's also an expert in pricing, knowledge workers, and project management, topics he speaks about to global audiences. And regarding project management, that's why I wanted to talk to Ed about ERP solutions. And the way I want to structure this discussion is what do we do before the implementation, during, and then after the implementation? I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf, and our visit with Ed Kless is around the corner. Get our guest is Ed Kless. Among other things, I consider him a project management expert in the area of software selection, planning, and implementation. While his day job is serving as the senior director of partner development and strategy at Sage, I could not resist by telling Ed that the Soul of Enterprise is my favorite podcast that he and Ron Baker host. No, actually, it's uh, it's Russ Roberts' Econ Talk. To be able to do the show, we're just both of us are just so blessed. Uh, I'm grateful to Ron for inviting me to do it because it was really he was the one who was offered the show by Voice America and wanted to do it as a, a duo and extend it out to me. Plus the fact that I was able to get a corporate sc- sponsor, which helped too. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's really been fun. It's been a great couple of years, well, five, six years coming up on six years. And speaking of corporate sponsors, one of those is your employer. You've been with Sage 15, 16, some odd years, right? It'll be seven. It'll be, let's see, it'll be eight, actually 18 years in uh, July. Now you have an interesting career path. What what were you doing before Sage? And then how did you wind up with Sage? Yeah. So let me we'll go, go back. I, I, Took two accounting classes in college, so debits by the door. That's all I remember. But I got a job with a CPA firm on Long Island where I'm originally from in what was called back in the time their management advisory services department and did software implementations of everything. We were the the people who, who uh, I later came to hate uh, because we were selling software costs. This was back in the day when a CPA firm wasn't allowed to make a profit on the sale of software. There's still a couple of those out there who are, uh, you know, try to keep the arm's length transaction. But anyway, we would implement just about anything. Didn't do all the particularly good job. But I will say this on my first day, I got my own office in, in air quotes because it was the computer room and there were three computers in the firm and people would come in to use the computer and quick, funny story. The, the, the managing partner who is actually, you know, just petrified of computers would not enter the threshold. Like whenever he wanted to see me, he would always stand outside the door and just kind of look in. I think he was afraid that if he like went in to a room that had a keyboard, he, he was going to be considered a secretary. I mean, that's like the way the mentality I process stuff, but uh, it was, so it was kind of weird, but yeah, so I was there with the three computers. Um, and then I 
realized that accounting firms didn't really know what they were doing with regard to implementing software, at least mid-sized ones. I moved on to a firm that was creating a whole new practice. It was a larger firm and they were going to do a, a separate practice that was going to do a consulting wing. Well, guess what? They didn't know what they were doing either. Uh, finally met up with this guy. We started a company. I was with that company for, let's see, about seven years, 10 years, maybe se- seven years or so, and sold my interest in January of 2001. For 18 months, I did independent consulting I did, and I did work for Microsoft on a big project for those. They had just acquired a company called Great Plains. And I was on a team that went around and talked to Great Plains Partners, which I was one. That's where I sold the interest in the company and talked to them about how we were going to you know, create this new channel under the Microsoft auspices. Uh, we wrote a report. Microsoft completely ignored it. <laughs> um, but I ran into a guy who I was familiar with, this guy, Taylor McDonald, who then hired me as a, as a consultant for Sage. And he liked the work that I was doing and finally brought me on board full time after about a three month consulting gig. So that was the path to to where I am as age. You were kind of on a parallel parallel path with Gary Boomer. Did you ever cross paths with him? With Gary, I, I knew who Gary was, probably met him a couple of times, but we really didn't interact much. I would say until about six or seven years ago when Inside Sage, I made a transition from working primarily with our partners who did uh, who resell or at the time resold. Now they just sell through, right? Uh, our, the ERP mid-market systems toward the uh, accountants network, working specifically more with accounting firms. So it was about the same time that I started doing the radio show, this transition occurred. And that's when I really got more and more involved with, with Gary. And he and I have done a lot of sessions together now and uh, have a have a great time with it. So as I listen to you reading between the lines, through the lines, after the lines, I'm thinking this guy gets. I mean, you're you're a consultant. Looking back, and this may be the hardest question, Ed. Looking back, what's been some of your favorite consulting type work you've ever done? You know, the, I don't know if there's a type of work that I enjoy doing more than others. I certainly enjoy certain engagements significantly more than others. And I think it's when I have the ability to really help people even after I'm gone, like after the engagement is over. Uh, in fact, on, on the radio show, I was just talking about this with with Matthew Stewart and this I think the beauty of being a real, a, a true consultant is when you can give them a model for behavior as to how they can begin to solve problems that come up on their own in the future. And I don't think there's anything more wonderful than that. And a, no higher compliment can you get from one of your customers than when they say, hey, listen, you've really changed the way I think about stuff. And uh, and have made an improvement in the in the in the in this organization and in me as a person. You're teaching them how to think, as as opposed to here's a checklist and we're going to check this off, this off, this off. Yeah, yeah. I'm 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 teaching them how how to approach a problem. I mean, I, I think that yeah, that's the way I would kind of put it. Yep. Well, enough of the bromance uh, questions. Let's get into the the, the topic. <laughs> uh, ERP implementations. Usually, we 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 interview book authors, and and let me just walk off a cliff. 
uh, watch a Chicago Cubs baseball game in, in March at Wrigley, <laughs> if that were to ever happen. <laughs> I would never read a book on ERP implementation. So let's just talk about it instead. The, to me, the best way to approach this is what do you do before the implementation, during the implementation, and after? And let's just start with the decision-making uh, process first. Number one, I work mostly with business owners, CEOs, $75 million dollars and under. And I'm not going to ask you the question, why do they wait? Instead, I'm going to ask, how can we be convincing them it's time to be moving on from the small accounting package that we all, you know, the 800 pound gorilla, we won't mention. Yeah. There's actually, there's <laughs> several. Uh, and some of them are good. They serve their purpose. Yeah. So that one, two, three, five, even 10 million. But how do we get owners to say, it's time to think about moving on sooner rather than later. It's a it's a really challenging question, mostly because reality is is that in all of all of the systems, from the eight hundred pound gorilla all the way on up to the million pound gorilla in the debits equal credits, every system. Debits equal credits. There's no like, oh, we have triple entry bookkeeping in our system. <laughs> so ultimately, you could, in theory, run a large multinational organization on a really small accounting package. Debits equal credits. It would be extraordinarily challenging and you wouldn't get the operational data that you need. But from an accounting standpoint, there's no reason why, at least theoretically, you couldn't do it. So I think the the key is to something that is near and dear to our hearts at at the Veris Age Institute, where Ron and I, uh, Ron's the founder and I'm a senior fellow, is helping the the customer or prospective customer have the conversation about value, about what is what 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 is the value of the problems that they are experiencing, or the what would they be able to get had they been as a result of implementing the software. And, um, you know, I'm a big believer and follower of a guy by the name of Mahan Khalsa and his book, Let's Get Real or Let's Not Play. And I, I love his questions around what he calls moving off the solution, which is the ability of, of the consultant to, when posed a problem, when the, when the customer or prospective customer says, hey, I've got this problem, the tendency for consultants is to say, all right, and here's the solution. I am so smart. Let me show you the solution that I have you know, in my head, and here's the solution. And Mahan says, that, that, no, that's a mistake. Because if you go in and solve the problem too early, you haven't really understood what are the ramifications of the problem. How does the problem manifest itself? And his first, he says, first, your job is to move off the solution and uncover the evidence that there is a problem. And the impact, if you can, if you can solve it, and until we completely explore that, we we can't propose a solution. It's it, it, it's actually detrimental to to ourselves and to the customer and to the prospective customer to answer that question too early. And this this of course also harkens back to another great consultant who's a huge mentor of mine, Peter Block, and his notion of asking. What matters questions before the how questions? So perhaps we can talk a little bit and unpack that a little bit later. That's brilliant. Uh, we had Steve Cakebread on a few months ago. He's the former CFO for Salesforce, and he helped to take them public. He's taken two other companies public. He's CFO right now for Yax. I'm going to quote him. He says, 
cheaper to implement systems in the early stages rather than waiting. And that's more of a comment that start now, don't wait till it's too late. Because if you wait too late, there's going to be a lot of negative uh, consequences because you're running out of bandwidth if you're still using that smaller 800-pound package. Uh, agree. Yeah, I do agree. But, you know, the, the thing is, is that most most folks are not they're just not going to see that they're 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 not they're not going to be able to see that. Uh, it's it's it, this goes to another Verisage colleague of ours, Reginald Lee, who talks about, look, we pay him anyway. Pay him any, I pay him anyway. <laughs> right. And um, th- th- unless you can convince me that I'm going to you know pay them less somehow, what does it matter? True. And I think that that's part of the problem because that, but th- again, that's, that's immediately when you move to solve the problem initially, that's what your, your, the customer or prospective customer is going to come back with. That's why you really have to mutually explore this. What's the true impact beyond the cat or to get to cash costs? What, it, what, what, what revenue are you not getting because you don't have the proper system? You did what I was predicting you would do, you'd have the perfect answer. So one of my questions was, how do we even go about vetting? Because let's say we've gone through your, your suggested solution mm-hmm. that you just shared with us. Now you've got all these different packages to, to, to choose from. How do you start filtering from maybe eight down to four, down to three, down to one. This is a judgment. It's not it, It's not going to be something that we can, I think, measure accurately. As I said earlier, debits equal credit. So in, for, in terms of your core accounting, there's not going to be a, any difference at all, right? Now, perhaps there's difference in ability to report whether you're you're doing a you know a chart of accounts that has you know multi-dimensional analysis as part of it and you know th- those kinds of things. So certainly yes, there's there's going to be features, but again, m- make sure that when you have, have have had the conversation about the evidence and impact, you should be able to know which of those evidence and impact statements have the biggest effect ultimately on the company and make sure that the that the the package that you're selecting, the software that you're selecting, has the best chance at solving the biggest problem. I want to move into now we've made a selection. Now we're starting to do the implementation. And one last thing, this is an opinion, Ed. Maybe I've seen too many situations where we rushed into a ERP decision. My opinion is we should be spending as much time, if not more, before implementation than, than during. Oh, heck yeah. Yeah. No, this is, this is, <laughs> this is, this is back to Eisenhower. Um, you know, plans, planning is worthless. Planning, oh, I'm sorry, plans are worthless. Planning is essential, right? It's the process of planning. And one of, one of the lines that I, I would teach a class on, on implementation. And when we talked about planning, one of the things that I said was, look, it's going, when we're teaching, when I'm teaching the class, we're going to spend twice as long on on planning and me teaching you about planning than we are on me teaching you about the implementation. Yes. Stuff. And this mirrors what you're going to experience out in the field, which is you're going to spend twice as much time as the customer feels comfortable planning. And what that means is this. When the customer says, are we done with this freaking planning? We're halfway. Good point. I'm going to add an exclamation point to your exclamation point. 
Good. I think I think it was 2014, 2015, Jeff Bezos. I mean, just just his uh just his his letter every year is, is outstanding. And hopefully he keeps writing it now that he's no longer a CEO. But I think it was in 2015, maybe. And we'll check this in the show notes. Type one decision, type two decision. Type one decision being this is life or death. And and mm-hmm. there aren't many type one decisions you make. Type two decisions, make them quick. Move on. If you make a mistake, go, go back and fix it. This is a type one decision, which is, I'm going back. Now I'm going back to this in, the, in this tennis match. I'm going back to you. Yeah, take a lot of time planning on which system we're going to select. Without question. And look, I, I think, well, and, and this is a bias of mine for sure. I, I, part of the problem, especially in the in the, the small and medium space, is that there, there really is a lack of understanding of what project management really is. And uh, far too many people think that project management is just senior implementation consultant, and it's not. I, I, I'm, I, and again, when I when I would teach this class, I would say I don't I don't know a particular software package, but I could be the project manager on it. I don't have to know the technical details of the stuff. I would have somebody who knew that stuff, but project management is an oversight role. It's not a do role. It's it's a it's the it's the coach, not the quarterback. And I I think that that people oftentimes mistake that. And um, you really need someone who is who is looking at it from that higher perspective, from the press box level or from the sideline level, not from on the field. And I I think that that's a challenge because oftentimes what what people are asked to do is they're asked to be implementers and manage the project. So I think that companies don't understand that, and and the the companies that are implementing don't understand it, and the companies that they're that are being implemented at even understand it less. <laughs> um, and I, I think that that's that's a real shame. It's a real a problem. That's one of my passions. Is hey, listen, we gotta we gotta do this properly. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Great point. This may seem like a a dumb question. It's not a trick question, but who owns the roadmap of the project plan? And I've been... I've been looking. I've been looking forward to hearing the answer to this. So we, we there's a roadmap that's going to be created of getting mm-hmm. this getting this beast implemented. Who owns that roadmap? Well, let me take a slight step back. One of one of the things I think is most misunderstood is that before project planning comes project initiation, and in project initiation is where we define who owns what. Right. <laughs> and in project, we don't even plan. We just we're just defining who owns what. And one of the things I think is important in project initiation is to say, as a consultant, this is your project, Mr. or Ms. Customer. This is yours. I'm here as the Sherpa. I'm here as the guide. But this is your system, not my system. Uh, 
I, I I used to hear this all of the time from this one particular customer of mine. You know, he would be like, do you know what your system did? You know what your system? I'm like, dude, not my system, your system. And one time it rose to the level where he said to me, I walked in the door and he goes, your system's down. And I said, really? I guess I got to call the office and find out what's going on. He said, well, what do you mean, call the office? I said, well, I got to call back my office and find out because my system's down. He said, no, 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 no. The system here is down. I said, it's not my system. It's your system. Now now we've established that. Let me help. But so if that's what you mean by roadmap, ultimately, it is the, the customer who owns that because it's their system. There may come a time when they are going through this planning process and going down, down a path where they are making a decision that you feel is so egregious that you feel necessary to say, hey, listen, if you continue down this path, I'm not going to continue to be a part of it. I mean, and that may even be an ethical conversation. It may be an ethical decision that they're making that you are in, in disagreement with. But it's theirs. It's not yours. I was trying not to lead the witness, but that was the answer <laughs> I was looking for. Because it's not because typically the, whoever we are buying the so- or, or leasing or subscribing to, we're going to be hiring their person to implement be the kind of the offsite. Mm-hmm. But in my opinion, it's still the client, the customer that owns that roadmap. And and that's, so I was hoping that's, I, I wasn't doubting, but that was the answer I was looking for. Yeah. Well, but th- uh, let me just reinforce this notion of Sherpa, right? The, 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 the Sherpa are a people in Nepal who help people get to the top of Mount Everest. That's, that's what their job is. <laughs> and uh, in, in fact, Sir Edmund Hillary when he got to the top of Mount Everest was with uh, a Sherpa. His name was Tenzig Norgay. And it was for years and years and years, they, they really didn't know, you know, and, and, and Edmund Hillary to his credit would always say, and Tenzig, you know, Tenzig was with me. It was a very, very important, but they never said who got to the top. Um, and I, I, I saw this crazy. In fact, it was at a Microsoft conference that I, that I saw Sir Edmund Hillary speak. This is before he passed away. And, um, one of the people asked him a question. It was just after they had discovered that the year before he got to the top of the summit, another party had gotten to the summit, but they perished in, in a avalanche or something. And it was some problem and they found him and they found their diaries. And it turns out, yes, they had gotten to the summit. So they, he, they, who's asked about this. And Sir Edmund Hillary said, well, you know, getting down counts too. And, it's very. I think this is a very important thing. Oftentimes, with ERP implementations, consultants tend to leave their charges on the top of the mountain and don't help them get back down. They're like, "Call us when you need us for an upgrade," and you're like, "What are you doing? <laughs> You've left them at the top of the mountain. Great, but now they got to get down. This is dangerous. Equally dangerous as it was getting up." So uh, I think that there that, that that's that's an important thing to keep in mind as well. That's not only a great point; that's a big point. I'm, I'm keeping tick marks of how often I say "great point." Uh, <laughs> once upon a time, I was told that whatever the project plan calls for and time to get this implemented, let's say it's eighteen months. Mark, just double it. It's going to be 36 months. Does that mean a a two-year project, just double it before? And I still hate that thought. 
I, there, there's a part of me that we can put people on the moon, but yet it takes us forever to get this ERP system, the beast. It should not have to be. I don't care how complex it is. I just, just, I want to hear some of your thoughts about that. Yeah. So two, two, two things on that. One, I think part of that is because the customer tends to push the consultant to implement too early. And so if it says, if we say it's an 18 month project and I say, I want to spend the first nine of it planning, <laughs> they freak out. I'm like, no, that's, that's what is that. What that's how we should do it. If, if you want me to start implementing sooner, then there's going to be this phase that comes afterwards that you can tack on, which does double the timeline called fix it. So I think that that's, you know, again, it gets back to the conversation we had earlier, an insistence on doing a lot more planning before you start to do the work of implementation. And I think that's the reason why. But also, I would would say this. There's a difference between change and transition. Change is the is the physical nature of the, the change. So the change is I came into work and there was a new screen in front of me. There was <laughs> and there was a new system in front of me. That's the change. That's the physical nature of the change. But that's relatively easy. Relatively. It, I'm not saying it's simple, but it's compared to transition. Transition is the emotional response of the people involved in the implementation and their emotional reaction to the new system. And when I hear people talk about change management, it makes me a little bit nuts because change management is only technical. You're only worried about the technical side. And, and again, this gets back to Peter Block and his theory that, that a great consultant is one that keeps both the technical and the emotional well-being of the people that they're working with in equal proportion to one another. And what we want to make sure that we do here is get this transition right, because that's where you're going to encounter what, I, what we call resistance. And the, the reason it takes the, all of that extra time is not from – it's, it's rarely – it can be, but rarely is it ever a technical problem. It's actually a, a, a human being resistance problem to making it happen. It's, it, it guy, what's weird is it guises itself. It, 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 it manifests itself as what appears to be technical, but ultimately it's not. I've learned this from you, Ed. And, and we'll have this in our show notes. I can't remember which which show it is, but you had a, a I mean, you and, well, I say you and Ron, Ron may have taken the, the day off, but you talked about project management. <laughs> he usually falls asleep, actually, when I talk about project management. But, <laughs> but by the way, I would say it's in one of my top 10 shows. I, I hope that's not an insult because you have so many great, but I, I've listened to it more than once. I've taken notes, but in that show, you bring up uh, scope. So I would say another reason for delay is just the expansion of scope. Oh, sure. And I, I even go back to Jeff Bezos. Is this a type one decision of changing the scope? Maybe we we uncovered a big rock that's hidden we didn't know existed. Sure, you have to change the scope. But I would say a lot of nitpicky things, just wait till after. Let, let's get this main project done and again, I go back to scoping expanded. Yeah, and I, I, I and that that's where I where I think we tie into to Ron Baker's work and and ERP consultants traditionally love the expansion of scope because they're billing by the hour, and it's like ta-ching. 
And if you've if you've moved more over to fixed price agreements, a fixed scope for a fixed work, well, it makes you concentrate more on it. And if you're, you know, we like script. Let's leave subscription out, but I'll go back to my my old method. Well, then, then if they if we find something that's outside of scope, we have to have a change order or change request that's put in and processed. And a change request is just a a, a, a mini new project, a mini and and starts with a mini new value conversation. It starts with what's the value of this change that you want to make why why is this so important what's the evidence that it's a problem and the impact if it if we do or don't do it so um you know so I, but I, I do i do think that that cha- that scope creep can can certainly be a, a problem and I, and I make a distinction between scope creep and scope seep right scope creep is the stuff that the customer says hey oh we just found this Scope seep is the stuff that the consultants have a tendency to put in and say, wouldn't it be great if you also did this? <laughs> and so that's the scope seep part. And they're equally dangerous. Agree. Well, before we move on, I've had this happen two, three, four times in the last 12, 15 years. Uh, the consultant, the Sherpa, if you will, they left midstream. And it's like, mm. that's one of the last things. And the first time it happened, I thought, this has never happened before. How could this happen? But stuff happens. Uh, first of all, has have you ever experienced that? And how do you, how do you prepare for that? I, I can't say that I experienced it. Remember, I, when I was doing implementations, I was, I was the Sherpa. I'm sure I'd have to give it some thought that there were times when the organization, I, I or the organization I work for got fired in the middle of it. So, uh, but yeah, I, I don't think that's anything that you can potentially plan for because it's, it's, it, it's really just a, at that point, you might as well shut the project down and restart and say, okay, we got a whole new project here. For the small, what I call the small niche uh, ERP solutions, let's, let's, pull one out of our, our hats, maybe uh, B2B, e-commerce, um, HVAC. It's going to be hard to say you need a, who's that second person standing, but in larger organizations, take mm-hmm. one maybe owned by Microsoft, you know, who is that second person who's going to, you know, if, so I think with the bigger organizations, you can maybe ask, you know, who who's number two who could take over if needed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you you know, my my experience mostly is working through partner organizations who are reselling and implementing. So you know, that it again, it does happen. And yes, in some cases, it's been the the professional services group of the of the vendor that comes in to quote save the implementation. Although oftentimes, I you know, I I, I would always recommend that you get another partner rather than the the vendor, um, mo- mostly because vendors and I'm part of one right we have a tendency to focus on well our product does x <laughs> and partner organizations are far better at the creative solution uh what what sometimes is quote a workaround that can be absolutely extraordinary great point mm-hmm. um my favorite one that I was ever part of was this uh a a not-for-profit organization that needed a grant management system and the organization and the, the software that I was representing at the time did not have a separate grant management system. So what I did was, is I turned the purchase order system into a grant management system by having a purchase order for money. <laughs> so, 
because what is a grant? A grant is a purchase order exactly. for money. It's a it's a purchase order for money. So you would, they would just risk, and they said this is a fantastic grant management system. I'm like, no, it's actually just purchase order. But you know, hey, it works. I call it Peter Block thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Okay, so the implementation we we've hit the we've hit we're on top of the mountain. Yep. Now we're coming down the mountains. Coming down, baby. So, yeah. So really the work is just getting started. I mean, that I'm just going to say that first month, that second month, those may be the most miserable days of any person's career and you're nodding. Um, and I don't think that, 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 that will never change. Uh, the, those first three months, even the first six months, I mean, everyone throughout the organization is just going to be almost miserable. Is there anything that can be done to ease that, the first couple of months after implementation. It's that, that goes back actually to conducting yep. transition sessions, right. And, and, de- and dealing with the emotional side of things, which sadly far too many technical people are, are incapable of, uh, of, of, of handling it. Um, <laughs> there's a, there's a great joke in the tech industry it goes something like this. It was a, a, a helicopter that got lost near Seattle and their navigation system stopped working but they were able to see the top of a skyscraper in this big dense fog that had blanketed the area. So they flew over to the top of where there was a meeting going on at the at the at the top level in a in a conference room. And the helicopter pilot held up a sign that said, Where are we? And the people in the conference room said, Hold on a second. They wrote on something and held it back and said, You're in a helicopter. And the helicopter guy pilot said, Thanks, and landed. And the passengers were amazed by this. They said, Well, how did you what did you, how, how did you know? He said, well, I, I, I understood that once I got a technically correct, but useless answer, I was at the Microsoft building. <laughs> and I think that that's what happens with this, um, the, the, this getting down piece of it is far too many people are just approaching it from a technical side and not approaching the people side. And we really have to make room for that for for I mean, I know it sounds silly, but grief, grief over the loss of the old system, as terrible as it was, it was what was familiar. And, you know, getting very real here, you know, people have parents who perish, who die and who were not the best parents. But there's an overwhelming amount of grief that goes along with that. I don't mean to equate. ERP systems and, and, and familial relations, but there's a relationship there as bad as it was. It was what was familiar. It was what we were used to. And we have to allow that to, to pass. I want to give you and Ron a tip of the cap because on that way down from the mountain, I think there's a tool that can be being used and I think it can be used very effectively. And that's the after action reviews periodically. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'm going to, again, I'm tipping my cap to you, just a quick overview of the after action review and then how it can be applicable coming down the mountain. Sure. After action review developed by the United States military in re- response to the, the debacle that was Vietnam in, in that they had done, you know, post a- after engagement conversations. But in the after action review, the big change was adding, adding in all right, what was what was supposed to happen, what didn't happen, and why? And the 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 why and what you know what 
why didn't it happen the way we thought or what went well and what didn't go so well and why did those things not go well or did go well? And it's really an understanding that why that the the power of the, the after action review, I think, uh, manifests itself. I would say do that frequently going down that yes. mountain. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, the, you know, this after action reviews can be a formal process that happened at the at the end of an engagement, but they can also happen at various times throughout the engagement. Heck, they can happen after a phone call. Just have a quick huddle meeting and say, all right, what do we expect out of that phone call? What went what, well? Why did it go well? What didn't go well? Why did it go well? What are we going to do for, differently on our next call? And, you know, work yourself through that process as often as you possibly can. It becomes a culture in the organization more than anything. Uh, one last comment before we move on. Time has been going fast. This has been great, Ed. This is, again, strong opinion, very strong opinion from 20 plus years of consulting work and then about 15 more just being in the field, working in pu public accounting, private industry. When you implement that ERP system, you've got to have at least one, two, maybe three super users. And over time, I've come up with two terms, the power user uh, versus the, the super user. The power user who can, he or she understands 80% of the solution, go-to mm -hmm. person. Uh, the super user also understands 80% of the solution, but they can lift up the hood, change the carburetor, and then and they move on. And by the way, the reason it's never 100% is... Just, just call, call, call the VAR, call, call, call the consultant. To, you don't want to learn everything. Your, your thoughts on super users, because that should be part of the planning process at the very beginning. Who will be those super users? And again, I'm bringing this point up because a lot of CEOs at that $75 million and under, I don't think they think about that. But agree. I agree, and uh, but I, the, the the only caveat I put on it is when, when you're when you're developing the structure of the scope, and you're breaking things. I usually break things into different teams, right? You're going to identify the team leads in all of those different places, and absolutely, you would. But here's the here's the caveat: the person that you identify early on may not ultimately be who it is in the end. <laughs> And I think you have to be willing standing, to, to right? yeah, that, well, and, and pivot off that and recognize that, you know, so-and-so has a better capacity for this. And maybe the, I, I like, I really like your distinction between power versus super. I think that there's a, there's an important point there as well. Um, but I think the, the, the caveat, again, don't be afraid to pivot off of who you thought it was going to be in favor of somebody who may in fact be more junior. And by, and by the way, you do bring up a great point because if this ERP system has a strong CRM part of it, and let's assume yep. that your uh, marketing automation software ties into the CRM, which then ties into the ERP, yeah, you'd have a super user for marketing, super user for sales, and, and, and so on. So I, I, thank you for, for bringing that up. Uh, one couple, couple of last questions before we wrap up. I, I put in my interview arc the concept of an ERP audit. So this would be even before we even start having the conversation, that value conversation. Is there such thing as an ERP audit where you can look at, maybe you already have an ERP solution. A couple of my clients who are manufacturing, we do have ERP solutions. We don't like them. We've gotten smarter. It's like, oh, we should have done this. <laughs> we should have done what Mark suggested eight years ago, 10 years ago. But is there such thing? I've looked this up. Is there such thing as an ERP or audit where you can start asking, 
again, I don't want it to, to stymie our creativity, but it's more of a checklist. Uh, we didn't forget this question or thought as we start doing the planning process. A- absolutely. It's a res- it, by the way, it's a result of all of the implementations that left people at the top of the mountain. That, okay. that was the cause of what you're talking yes, about. Yes. And, 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 and part of it is, again, it you know, ties back to the billable hour too, is like, you've done this implementation. You, maybe you've bu- gone through, burned through all of your billable time and now you're stuck, right? Cause in the customer, the company doesn't want to spend any more money, but it's, it's that, that fine tuning. It's the, you know, Pareto stuff. Well, we, we did 80% of the work, but we only got 20% of the value. You see the last 20% of the, val- the work is where you get the other 80% of the value is a, and I, so I think that 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 that's a big part of it. So what does that mean? Well, and I and I I made this joke on several occasions that early in my career at Sage, if ever I left Sage, uh, I was going to start a company that said, "You don't need to buy new software. You just you just need me to come in and fix what you got." I like it because most of the time it it this again debits equal credits. There's something that we can do to fix what your biggest problem is. We just have to think about it creatively. And you probably kicked the the people that did the implementation out and didn't give them a chance to get there uh, through, you know, really a a, a mutually destructive relationship that you had with them. So can can I nitpick? Can I nitpick one? Sure. Uh, Absolutely. It's it's not that the Sherpa took them up the mountain and didn't take them down. They took them up the wrong mountain. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they could have could have been the wrong mountain too. It could have been the the, the total wrong mountain. Although, like I said, I far too many times have I seen it was just be you don't you don't need to re, to get a new piece of software. <laughs> hey, again, Ed, this has been great. Time flies. I think I've heard that on your show a lot. Uh, this has been outstanding. Yes. <laughs> hey, this is CFO Bookshelf, and and of all the people I ask this to, it's like I don't need to ask you this question. I know what books you read. I know what books you like, but I'm going to go ahead and ask the question anyway for people who have not listened to the Soul of Enterprise. What are some of the what are some of the books that have stood out the most professionally for you? And if you want to bring up any books that have influenced you personally, that that's fine too. Maybe books that you've gifted uh, the most or the books that have just had the biggest uh, mind shift. Oh gosh. Yeah, well, I've mentioned a couple already. Mahan Kalsas, Let's Get Real, Let's Not Play. Peter Block's book, Flawless Consulting, all three flavors of it. It's right behind me and I have three, all three <laughs> editions of it. Uh, I, I would add one. Some This would be a lesser known Home is my my mentor's book called Healing yes. Leadership by Absolutely. Howard Hansen and Steve Jeske. Um, yeah, so, so that that that's that's another one which ties into Edwin Friedman's book, um, A Failure of Nerve: Leadership in the Age of the Quick Fix. I would also throw in there some non-consulting books. So let's go with A uh, 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 Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Um, I, I I think that the, there's something really truly to be learned from his understanding of human freedom. And that the last of the human freedoms is our ability to feel about the situation the way we feel about the situation that we're in and that that cannot be taken away from us. And that that's something that that applies to ERP implementations, because there's a lot of people who feel that they're being put there, that the man is coming down on them. And what we have to help them is get 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 their their head back together to say, no, you, you're a free sentient human being. So uh, just that would be off the top of my head. I'm probably missing uh, anything by Peter Drucker. 
Sorry. <laughs> Just throw in anything say, by I Peter read, Drucker. I read The Effective Executive at least once a year. It's outstanding. It's one of the few books where don't skip the introduction. The introduction is outstanding. Uh, good, mm-hmm. Great selections. Uh, you also, uh, well, I was going to ask you about what you're watching. I, 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 it's like Ed quit mentioning shows on Netflix or whatever. We'll, we'll, we'll put on that for, for another time. But <laughs> again, your show, the, the soul of enterprise is outstanding and that's not the only show you do either. Let, let's mention you're doing one for Sage, right? Correct. Yes. It's the, the Sage thought leadership podcast. It's a, a, a shorter 10 minute uh, podcast that I do. I've released three, wow. maybe sometimes four episodes a week. And Yep. So it's a, it's a, it's turned through and it's, it's really about highlighting the person that I'm interviewing. You know, I've got a, I've got a, a formulaic approach to it, but it seems to work in that it's, it's a good balance between some standard questions and then some understanding of, okay, now I'm going to do a little, something a little bit deeper with this particular person. What's, what are, what are they fired up about lately? And that's usually the easiest thing you can get somebody, Hey, what are you fired up about today? And then, we talk about that. <laughs> well, again, Ed, this has been fantastic. And uh, d- please don't stop. I-, I hope you do 300 plus more and beyond of the Soul of Enterprise. Well, we're, we're, we're looking forward to some milestone shows. I joked recently that we're, we're, we're in sight of show 365, which would mean we could release the Soul of Enterprise a day. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf. Lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Ed, thank you very much. Someone I could listen to all day. Hey, want to hear more from Ed Kless? If you don't already, again, he's a co-host with Ron Baker of The Soul of Enterprise. And he also hosts the Sage Thought Leader podcast. We'll have those links in the show notes at cfobookshelf.com. Next week, we have John Daniels, a data warehouse expert who talks like a CFO, so he will not put us to sleep. And by the way, our May lineup is already filled out. We'll hear from Simon Wardley. He's a strategy mapping expert. Great discussion. I'm calling Jack McCullough, the CFO of all CFOs, and what a great conversation we had, and that's going to be a good one. The genius behind the Microsoft 95 campaign and several other big products at Microsoft will be on to talk about strategy. His name is Brad Chase. The first ever CFO we know about is John Jacob Raskob. Oh, by the way, great trivia question. He was the guy who built the Empire State Building. And we'll be talking to his biographer, David Farber. That will be an insightful conversation. Winding up May's shows will be Greg Graves to talk about being a CEO of a large ESOP, a global engineering firm based in Kansas City, Missouri. Again, thank you very much for listening to CFO Bookshelf. And if you like the show, please give us a rating wherever you listen to the show. And by the way, we appreciate our listeners around the globe. Hey, I'm Mark Gandy. Until next time.